Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Sorry, just getting comfortable. Um, apologies, because I completely forgot to do, well, I got waylaid, that's the truth. Completely got waylaid into doing my podcast episode last week. In the end, mid last week, Wednesday, we flew back from Lithuania to Ipswich and it got back Wednesday uh, and it just ended up taking up all of the time, packing, unpacking, etc, etc. Anyway, back now in Ipswich, sitting in Monica's apartment until we figure out what our next plans are. Before I get to a quick overview, I'd like to thank Sizap for sponsoring this week's podcast episode. That is the motorcycle rider and tracker rider's mate, and I've been using it now for over a year. You can also have it in your car, ATVs, and pretty much any other vehicle. So if you're looking for a new tracker and rider's mate, go and check them out. That's sysapp.com. All of the details in the written description. Right, just to continue with my update. It's been a little bit frantic because ridiculously the day after, literally the day after, we got back to England. Um, I had both vehicles, the car and the motorbike, booked in for, for MOTs, which is the annual check. And I won't go into too much detail because there'll be a YouTube video about it. But anyway, ridiculously badly planned. I didn't even know the checks were due until about four days earlier. So I was calling up garages in the UK while in Lithuania saying, please, can you book it in? But this is the thing. Cars may be easier to book in for a standard service, a bit of mechanical work, but motorbikes, it's just on another planet. The standard waiting time here in Ipswich, and I've called around numerous places, so you can take my word for it, you're not going to get your motorbike looked at for three weeks. I know some places are six to eight weeks, meaning and this is not me preaching, bear that in mind, because I'm, I'm no mechanic, but it basically means that if you can't at least do the bare minimum maintenance on your motorbike, if the simplest thing ends up going wrong, well, you're bikeless for half of the season. Half of the season. It's, you really do have to, have to be able to do at least a basic amount of bike maintenance. And I speak about myself. I need to be able to do basic bike maintenance. So I've been watching YouTube videos, things like that. And it turns out that often things we think are daunting, if you take your time with it, you know, give yourself half a day or something, meticulously watch a YouTube video, watch the first section, pause it, get that little job done. Watch the next 30 seconds, pause it on YouTube, get that uh, other bit done. If you don't quite understand, just rewind it, fast forward it, get exactly right. Make sure you're 100% sure on every element. And really, you know what I've learned over getting the Bonneville already? You can't go too badly wrong. Just going back to Lithuania for a second, because I found this interesting. Lithuania has real extremes of temperature. And... You know, in the UK, yes, we are not famous for good weather. However, one good thing about the UK is we, we genuinely have year-round biking potential. For example, I bike year-round, whether it's December or January, March or August. Every single day of the year, pretty much, you can bike. It's very rare in the UK where you get completely iced out and you absolutely cannot ride. Lithuania is very different 
Because in Lithuania, you really only get three really nice months weather-wise. You know, speaking to a lot of Lithuanians, they were saying even in May, it was pretty much freezing once you get got to about 9, 10 p.m. So even in May, you get freezing temperatures. Then, of course, the summer comes. But from September, that starts dropping off. And of course, in a lot of countries, whether it's Canada, Lithuania, other places with extremes of temperatures, the one thing that I never took into account is, of course, winter tires are a legal requirement. And they don't really do winter tires for motorcycles because not many people are brave enough to go out on a motorbike in, in icy conditions with ice on the ground. And I don't even know if winter tires for road use are really a thing. So I was talking to a biker in Lithuania. It's not just the fact that, look, you're going to get cold in the winter if you're riding. It's the fact that it's, it's illegal because you don't have winter tires for your motorbikes, so you can't legally ride. So I can imagine how frustrating it is for a lot of bikers in these cold countries who just, you know, just sit there, just looking out the window, waiting for the good weather to return, or at least the acceptable biking weather to return. All right, I move on, I move on, because I've got a few interesting, uh, few interesting messages and emails that actually have built up over the past two weeks because I missed last week's run. Here we go, listen to this. Um, John in Scotland. John, always enjoy reading your email, so let's get to it. Freddie. Listening back to the last podcast and your section on interceptors versus BMW GSs, knowing a few BMW GS owners, one thing I've spotted is that they replace their GS after three years old and they buy another. No doubt this will be linked to finance, etc. The demographic buying will also be older. Arguably, this is because these are high mile bikes and very tech heavy. Owners want to upgrade to the latest livery technology, etc., etc. Whereas with interceptors, I think it's less likely an owner would replace an older one for a newer one, but more likely that they would upgrade to a different bike. Riders are typically not always younger, but likely younger than the average boomers buying the BMW GSs. I'm not sure how to get the data for our Enfield and BMW users, but if possible, I think we will unlock a very interesting insight into the future of bike riding. Both are selling like hotcakes and they are definitely the future of motorcycles. Warmly, JB in Scotland. See, this is really interesting because a lot of the time I think, you know, when you get a BMW GS, the ultimate adventure bike, well, there's nowhere else to go from there. That you've reached the pinnacle of motorcycling. You've got uh, an incredibly desirable, uh, competent, tech-heavy bike that a lot of people would say is, is the best bike on the planet. And I think they probably come in, not looking on the BMW website just for now, but I think they must be about the 18 to 19,000 pound mark. So you are well into pretty good car territory there. And the difference in the BMW GS and the Interceptor is a vast gulf in what they offer. And this is a very interesting point from JB. Interceptors, the owners will sell to more than likely upgrade. For example, to the likes of a BMW R90, a Triumph T120, just that little bit more power and very possibly a little bit more wow factor, a little bit more kind of, oh, you know, 
get get people's attention when you go out for a nice Sunday afternoon ride or something. A real, a real piece to be proud of. But it sounds like for the GS riders, they do exactly the same, but for a different reason. And that's to always have the latest and greatest technology. And this is a much more kind of car focused mentality. If I look at my parents, for example, they, they have been getting probably for about the past 15 years, German cars. And they like Audi A, Audi A4 estate, uh, BMW 3 Series estate, and now they've just gone and bought a BMW 1 Series, which is the, relatively speaking, little hatchback. And it's really interesting if you look at this, because my parents' Audi A4 estate that they had in 2006, so if they still had it, it would be 16 years old now. And the reality is, that was a 2-litre diesel. And the last BMW 3 Series that they just sold to replace the Audi was also a two-litre diesel. You know, and the reality is, you know, how much better was the newer BMW that they upgraded to? It's probably in reality negligible. They both had the same, well, they both had two-litre diesel engines. I would actually argue that the Audi's interior, and I know my dad agrees with me, is noticeably nicer than the newer BMW. So what you've got here are on paper two very evenly matched cars with the only difference being that the BMW, despite its worse interior, the BMW is newer, so it's got slightly newer tech. So if I said to my dad, look, you know, do you, do you notice a difference? Do you really notice a difference between the Audi A4, your old car, and the brand new BMW 3 Series? And I know my dad's answer would be, Look, not really, it's just the BMW is newer. So it's not that we're always upgrading, looking for vast improvements. It, it's just a case that a lot of the time you upgrade for that, that peace of mind that you've got a newer vehicle, despite the fact that it may not actually be much better at all. And the Germans are very good at this because if you look at BMWs, you know, this is a really interesting point. Look at the BMW GS. It is tech laden. That means, of course, it's going to be more expensive, but it's also a very interesting way that BMW can really entice current BMW GS owners into buying another one. Because if you're looking for a pure riding experience, let's say I've got a Triumph Bonneville and it is now 12 years old. If I go into a Triumph dealership and I look at the brand new Triumph Bonneville, you know, there's not loads extra there. I often go in and I think, you know, the horsepower's about the same. Yeah, it may have two riding modes. It may have rain and normal, for example. God, do I really care about that with a 65 horsepower bike? Do I really care about anything else that would go on it you know not really the fact is the new Bonneville I think all it's got is rain and road mode you know it's got ABS but it doesn't have any other specific high-tech technology that would entice me into getting it not that it would anyway it's not that kind of bike my point is I don't go into a Triumph dealership thinking I must get that brand new T Triumph T120 or T100 because that is a huge step up for my Bonneville I look at it and think that's a lovely bike but you know what I've got my Bonneville now and it is not a huge leap or it's certainly not. Even in the past 12 years, it's not a big enough step up to warrant me spending the extra money to get a new one. And I still feel like that even today. But if you're looking at BMW GS, 
This looks very different because they're constantly, constantly updating, improving the tech. It's a tech fest, whether it's lean angle ABS, 15 different programmable, editable, customizable riding modes. You've got, I think you've got electronic suspension. I remember when I tested the Harley Davidson Pan America. Once you stop, the suspension actually drops so it's easier to flat feet on both sides. All of these things for a big adventure bike are, uh, at least for the riders they appeal to, are hugely appealing. And it's a very good way to keep people upgrading and constantly upgrading, even though the vehicle they have is already very good. Fascinating area from a marketing point of view. I'm going to move on now. And I'll leave uh, German motorbikes and I'm going to move over to a company that does it better than anyone with regards to marketing. And this comes all the way from Rob in the US. Have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. Sorry, I've got Milka here, Monica's cat, Monica's mum's cat looking at me. I, I think she wants about her 18th meal of the day, but she's absolutely not going to get it. Right. From Rob. Hi, Freddie summer trip to the Harley-Davidson Museum in Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week. During summer, Harley sponsors Thursday... Okay, sorry, listen to this. During summer, Harley sponsors Thursday evening bike night and talk about bikes. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of beautiful new, old, classic and customised Harleys on display that night. The music provided by a rock and roll cover band done quite well. The museum provides a great restaurant with incredible 1930s bikes uh, handing over the, the bar. The food is high quality with amazing people. My decision and complexity slash clarity moment. The Harley-Davidson Heritage, Lowrider ST and Road King Special demo rides joyfully completed this morning. The 2022 Harley-Davidson Road King Special was head and shoulders, by head and shoulders, the best bike for me. Smooth ride, no, no huge fan, etc. Saturday's Harley-Davidson Museum provides demo rides from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So what you can do, you can go, go here to the Harley-Davidson Museum they basically provide demo rides from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, so you can go out and you can have a look at the Harley Davidson you're really keen on and just jump on one and jump off it and then jump onto another and go out and test them. I continue. Another wonderful attribute for a European rider's Harley Davidson visit. Milwaukee is super, super clean, quiet, charming. Uh, Harley Davidson are driving for younger rider image um, and just carrying on here, meta German rider, etc., etc. This this is a really amazing way to get people into a brand. And Harley Davidson do this brilliantly, and I'm sure they do it better than anyone, especially in the US. You know, having these big open days, these events, not only does it get people to be able to test out a number of different motorbikes on the same day, but it draws everyone in to the lifestyle and no one does lifestyle like Harley Davidson. So many people say to me when I'm, I'm looking at different bikes and thinking, what should be my next bike? They say, Freddie, trust me, go out and get a Harley Davidson and you will never look back. You still got that slightly polarizing element with Harley Davidson's, but you know, now you could even say that the BMW GS owners are starting to become more like the Harley Davidson owners. And I welcome any comments on that. But certainly with, with Harley Davidson, with 
just drawing you into that Harley Davidson lifestyle. You know, every time I go to a Harley Davidson dealership or I see Harley's out on a ride or a meetup somewhere, you, you can't help, you can't help but feel a little bit drawn into that whole lifestyle. I still look at Harley Davidson's all the time because they just do it so well. They make motorbikes from a passionate point of view and a passionate angle first and then get the technology in there. But they really, really make motorbikes that you desperately, desperately want to own. And I love that about that. And look at this, Rob, for example, he tested out the Heritage, the Lowrider ST and the Road King. And you can test those out in one day. So you can decide which bike you want to test out and you've got everything around you. I would say that I remember riding a Road King special about a year ago, just before I went to Tenerife. And I was hugely impressed by that bike. You know, I know that Harley Davidson are going for a younger audience now. My only slight issue with Harley Davidson going for a younger audience, if you look, for example, at, I think they call it the, the Harley Davidson Nightster. I need to try and test that. Problem with Harley Davidson, I'll be honest, they almost never apply to me when I contact them. But they've got a new Nightster out and a new Sportster out. And these are bikes that they're aiming to get an a, appeal to a younger audience. So they got rid of the old Sportster, for example. They've replaced it with the brand new Sportster. My personal opinion, I love the look of the old Sportster uh, and the, the way it was, relatively speaking, a fairly lazy bike. The new Sportster is a completely different animal. Now, the problem is, if you're appealing to a younger audience... What young people under the age of 25 have a spare £14,000 to spend on a motorcycle? £14,000. I think Royal Enfield have got it right, offering bikes at around about the 4K mark, because that, that will get young people into biking. That will genuinely appeal to young, biking, to young bikers. But my Lord, you've got to be a pretty successful entrepreneur to be able to afford... 14k as a, a young biker and getting into biking of course some people will be able to do it but you've got to be dynamite as a businessman or woman to uh to be able to afford a 14,000 pound bike if you're anything under the age of you know 28 25 or something it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes for harley davidson because i completely see when i look at their bikes yes they in theory could appeal to younger bikers but the problem remains the cost. Even for the cheaper ones, you know, 12, 14K is a, is a big, big chunk of money. I move on. Hi, Freddie and Monica. Just watched your latest vlog featuring old Java motorcycles. I've got a 2012 Java 350 classic two-stroke, which, uh, which is still imported by F2 Motorcycles in Wisbeck. The strap line, listen to this, the strap line for Java motorcycles, unspoilt by progress. I did not know that, that is brilliant. That's the Java strap line. Let me open up this website because I got sent, I got sent the actual website for the importer of Java motorcycles to the UK. And what a strap line, unspoilt by progress. Okay, I'm on the website now. It, it's, Slightly dated looking website, but that's fine. And if I click, for example, on Java, 
just some stuff about COVID there. And they actually, they do, they have a dealership in Cambridge. I tell you what, I will actually include details of this because if you're looking for a Java motorcycle, they are imported to the UK. I didn't know that. They've got a place in Cambridgeshire open Tuesday to Saturday, 9am to 5pm. And I'll see if I can see, they've got a list of Javas here. And you know the funny thing about this, I'm looking at the Java motorcycles right now that are for sale. And I'm bearing in mind that strap line of unspoilt by progress. These bikes look almost identical to the bikes that I saw in the, the gentleman's back garden that were saying on the side of them, made in Czechoslovakia from about 1982 or something like that. And these bikes here that are brand new, currently for sale, they look almost identical. They could have been in that back garden and I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. I would have thought, yep, okay, that must be one of the 1980s ones. If you're looking for, let's have a look at this. Uh, okay, the Java, no, I get that wrong. It's not Java, it's Yawa. Yawa, I keep getting the, the pronunciation wrong. If you're looking for a Yawa 350 and they are Euro 5, Let's see if they've got a price. It's 160 kilos, it's 400 cc. So that sounds like they've slightly increased. Cruising speed 55 to 70 miles an hour. And the price, well, this is quite eye-opening. The price for Java, keep doing it. The price for a Yawa, 350 on the road. So that's everything ready to go. 4,895 pounds. And if we compare that, let's say to the Royal Enfield Classic 350, which I think is about 4,600 pounds, I would say that's not far off. It's much lighter than the Royal Enfield. It will do 80 miles per hour top speed, and it's got 27 horsepower. That's competitively priced. Of course, bear in mind, if you buy this, you will be, you know, you'll have to, and it's fair. You'll have to be paying some import duties and things like that to the person who's getting it on the road for you. So it will have a slightly inflated price if you compare to the likes of a, a Royal Enfield, for example, which is completely understandable. But yawamotorcycles.co.uk, you can actually get one in the UK brand new. Right, I move on. Okay, oh, this is, this is the last email, and I wanted to go through this because this is, I get a lot of messages like this, um, and I've read, I've read emails out like this before because it is a, a sign of the times and, you know, what's going on at the moment. And in fact, actually, just having a read through here, no, there are two more things I want to get to, two more things. Let me read through this one first. Hi, Freddie. A word on riders choosing to downside, downsize from bigger, heavier, and more powerful bikes onto smaller, lighter, and more economical or characterful bikes. I, like so many, went for gradually bigger and bigger bikes over time until, after passing my full unrestricted license, I bought a 1990 Yamaha FZR1000. Even by modern standards, this wasn't a slow bike, boasting somewhere around 130 horsepower at the rear wheel. At first, the power was thrilling, but over time I realized it was forcing me to feel the need to go far too quickly everywhere I went. 
consistently breaking the speed limit as the bike could do over 70 miles an hour in first gear. I then also realized the massive weight, 240 kilos wet, was causing me to feel uneasy when maneuvering the bike around and I was still, well, and I was starting to avoid the super twisty single track roads that I used to enjoy so much. Long story short, I sold the thousand and I bought a 1989 Yamaha FZR 400. The 400 has a much more manageable and enjoyable 60 horsepower and weighs only 170 kilos wet, practically featherweight in comparison. Now I can ride at relatively pedestrian speeds while revving the little motor up to over 10,000 revs per minute and not even breaking the speed limit. Combine that with the incredible handling that comes with such a light bike and it provides everything you could ever want from a sports bike. The amazing inline front, the amazing inline four, sound, great handling, stunning good looks, all in a package that means you won't lose your license. I think a lot more riders are starting to have this sort of revelation that bigger simply does not equal better and become more and more comfortable with just riding the way they want to. The recent boom in Royal Enfields and their small capacity, low power, characterful bikes shows this better than ever. I think this is also what's leading to the death of the superbike as R1s, Fireblades, Ninjas become less and less popular in favor of smaller sporty bikes or talky sport twins, which have more usable power on public roads. Perhaps people's egos are becoming more resilient to the mockery of Panigale owners who want to justify riding 200 brake horsepower motorcycles on public roads in extreme discomfort and constantly risking their licenses as the police install more and more cameras. As a side note, I would go further as to say this is why electric motorcycles aren't. Oh, now this is interesting. Have a listen to this just to wrap up from Chris. Chris, thank you for this. As a side note, I'd go further as to say this is why electric motorcycles aren't as popular as many manufacturers are expecting, because despite them having insane power and instant torque, they're almost completely soulless at a time where people are searching more and more for bikes with soul over technical prowess and power. This, I find this a fascinating insight, because if we do look at electric motorcycles, let's look at... Harley Davidson with the live wire and Triumph with their TF1, I think it is. <laughs> These bikes have both been made by manufacturers who, who really have become famous for their, their bikes with character, with history, with heritage. Yet both of them, for their electric motorcycle offerings, have gone down the route of maximum power without any real feel for trying to somehow get that character and soul from their petrol-powered bikes and put it into an electric-powered bike. You know, get that. I'm not just talking about physical soul and character. I'm talking about the looks as well. Bring some of that heritage and the looks that have made those brands so famous. For example, let's get an electric Bonneville. Let's keep it as simple as possible for Triumph. Your, your most iconic motorcycle, the Bonneville, and make that electric. Surely that's a surefire sales success. And Harley Davidson, well, let's take a Sportster and make that into an electric motorcycle. Let, let's see what we can do with the classics, first of all. Yet both have gone down a completely different avenue of making 
look, they're both fine looking bikes, the TF1 and the Live Wire. They look okay, but, you know, they look like sports bikes. Uh, and they are hyper bikes in speed. And in a time when sports bikes are becoming less and less popular, and as Chris said, we care more and more about character over being able to do naught to 60 in 1.5 seconds and get to 300 miles an hour in 10 seconds, these big brands are going the other way and giving us an offering which is some kind of hyperbike performance, which I don't know if that's the right angle to go for. I really don't. You know, Harley-Davidson, the Livewire's been out a while now. I may be wrong. I don't think it's set the world alight. I know when it came out, there was a lot of talk about it, but I don't know if that's the bike that's going to change the biking industry and push us all onto electric. And in fact, I don't think that electric bike exists. I don't even know if it exists on paper yet. There's, there are a lot of hurdles that bikes need to get over to to really get into this electrification. They need to build, someone needs to come along and build a proper motorbike, electric, with character and looks, something you really want to ride. And then the other huge obstacle, range. You know, in a car it's 350 miles and that's becoming acceptable because you're not having to constantly charge up. 350 miles, I would say, is about the minimum you need because charging is a hassle. Whereas on a motorbike, because they're smaller, 100 miles is, you know, that's what we're looking at at the moment, 100 miles. Well, forget about ever going on a Sunday ride with your friends because you won't be able to charge up, so that's off the table. All you can do pretty much is commute if the range is 100 miles. And in reality, that means it's more like a 90 or 85 mile range. Well, it's way too restrictive. So there's a long way to go. But that I completely agree with that. Um, we need someone to come along and, and somehow get some character into the electric bike industry and the offerings, offerings going on. Uh, OK, let me move on. Oh, I have to get onto this actually. This just leads onto it. In fact, this beautifully leads onto it. Um, this is from JB. Freddie, huge news. Uh, I sold my Triumph Rocket 3R. I sold, and this, this, JB from Scotland again. I, I almost forgot to read this out, but you know, this is a guy who likes his big bikes, and for him to be selling his Triumph Rocket 3R, this is huge. Have a listen to this because it leads on very well from the last email. So I sold my Rocket 3R. As you know, I've been mulling over the whole future of big combustion motorcycles and the drive to EV. And I decided to make the jump. I sold my three-year-old R3 after 8,000 miles with 9,000, oh, after 8,000 miles of riding with a total of 9,300 miles on the clock. And I sold it for 15,000 pounds to a trader. The Rockets are holding their value extremely well. Go and check them out but for how much longer? What do I do next? I have no idea. My only bike left now is a 1985 VMAX project, which is a very special bike, but won't be ready until next year. This is what I do know. The future of biking is one of four things. Number one, small electric EV metro commuters. Now these are everywhere, even in London. I mean, we we're in Cambridge yesterday, little electric bikes, they're everywhere there too. Number two, Larger range EV bikes. Now this has to happen. 
and they don't exist yet. This is a, a colossal gap. Really, you need a 300 mile range for this to be relevant, and I agree. So number two, larger range EV bikes. Number three, smaller capacity retro bikes like a Royal Enfield and the BSA and the wave of Chinese bikes and Chinese derived bikes. And number four, classic bikes, but I'm talking pre 2000, so pre year 2000. I continue. Euro 5B is about to come in, Euro 6 is not far away, and the 2035 ban on new internal combustion engine bikes by 2035, big manufacturers diverting research and development away from petrol engines towards EV and hydrogen, and that's upon us. Where, you know, where will that lead us? What will be, thank you, JB, what will be the point when, you know, we really hit uh, a turn in the road because for cars, I think we're fairly close to that point now. I think in, in some stats about 10%, 10% of cars sold now are, are electric. I think in Norway, something like 40%. You know, we're getting there now with cars. Bikes, we feel years off still, really years off. And that's the point though, you, you know, you'll probably get to that awkward point where there's no point doing any more research and development into petrol engines because they're coming to an end. We may even be there now where there's just no more point putting any more research and development into them. It'll be very interesting. The next, you know, I've been saying this for a while, but I don't think we're any closer than we were a year or two ago with, with motorbikes. But like next five years, it'll be interesting to see. And let me wrap up with this um, because this is a biker. A biker who has, I think, retired and kind of just looking to get that passion back for bikes. Have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. Just wanted to drop you a thank you message. As I said before, I'm a long-time biker. For many years, um, bikes were my main transport. When I wasn't with my wife and kids, um, when I wasn't with my wife and kids in a family car, I was on whatever bike I had. But that tailed off not least of which was because I'd started buying MX-5s, the greatest car ever made. Now, I'm not going to argue with you here because I've had an MX-5 and there is nothing more fun, nothing more fun car-wise on the real roads than a Mazda MX-5. They're so stripped back and light and you feel like you're in a sports car from the 1960s. It's an incredible experience. And now I know this isn't a car podcast, but they're good value, the MX-5s. For the, the smiles per miles, they're superb value. And it's exactly as I always say for, for motorbikes. It's the perfect amount of power. I can't remember what they are, but they're only about a 1.8 litre petrol engine with rear wheel drive, nice and light. It's the perfect formula for fun. You don't need any more horsepower because you're capable of pushing that car to the limit. And that's where the fun is. Anyway, I carry on getting overexcited. Continuing. But when I retired from the fire service after 32 years, I had a plan. After much research and a mild crush on itchy boots, I decided that a Himalayan and a ticket to France to travel the TET, the T-E-T, was the perfect reti retirement trip. I'd even convinced a mate to accompany me, but COVID hit as I walked out the door, so travel plans were off. But the bike has been bought and spec'd up for overland trips, and yet it still languishes in my shed. Get ready for this. 160 miles on, 
a three-year-old bike. What a waste. So why my thanks? It's because I watch your videos and it reminds me of the passion that I lost, which you still exude. So I wheeled out my Himalayan out of the shed today, did 70 miles around the Yard Spint Peninsula with a coffee shop stop. I stuck to B-roads and had a ball. Maybe that wild camping Tet trip is back on the cards. Oh, Stephen, I love this, you know, and also, this kind of bike, this is why I love the Himalayan, just as a final point here. Because if, if for example, Stephen would have gone out after retiring and bought a, you know, a big kind of 15, 16,000 pound motorcycle and it languished in the garage like that, that's almost too expensive to stomach. You know, I speak to so many bikers who they may have lost their passion for biking or they may not quite understand the bike that they want and it's too painful having such an expensive thing in the garage and I completely understand. We are a broad church of bikers. There'll be some people where 20K is, it's nothing, it's fine. And some people where, you know, you could buy a 60K bike and it'd be no issue at all. Some kind of bruff superior. And there are those who can't afford a 500 pound bike. It, we've got everything in biking. So let's just say you're, you're retiring on a fairly average retirement. Uh, you know, you get your pension, etc., etc and you go out and you buy a 16 to 18K bike, but you know, COVID comes along and you realize, bugger, I can't go out on that trip this summer. Um, ooh, is it, can I justify having an 18,000 pound vehicle? Oh, that's a lot of money, an 18,000 pound vehicle in my garage, just sitting there collecting dust and then freak out happens and you gotta sell it, it's too much money to hold on to. But when you get a Himalayan, a bike under 5K, 4,600 pounds. I'm just saying Himalayan is an example. Could also look at used bikes. When you get something around that figure, it becomes much easier to stomach because it's fine, you leave it for a year or two. It's okay, it's, it's not going to take up too much of the money. There's a lot to be said for these sub 5K bikes because it takes up less of your, your bank balance and also less of your, your mental capacity if you get to a position that you didn't quite expect. And that's the beauty of the Himalayan. Don't use it for two years, fine. Dust it off, get back out. Hit the TT, the Tet in France. Stephen, let me know if you do it. Happy riding. Right, thank you so much again for Sizap for sponsoring this week's podcast episode. Have a fantastic week all, and I'll speak to you in the next one.